This is an SBC Media Partners production. Swung on, hit high and deep. Right field. Good at feet. Good at feet. It is out of Phillies fans, these are your glove stories with Murph. Let's check in with Greg Murphy. Murph, you got a special guest, huh? Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Glove Stories with Murph, presented by the Parks Casino Sportsbook app and the great folks at Red Robin. And it is really great to welcome in our guest today, who has one of the most interesting baseball stories to tell. And Phillies fans, you certainly know him for a lot of different reasons, and that's part of what makes his story so special. And we're going to get to all of that today. It is a real pleasure to welcome in Ruben Amaro Jr. to the show. Uh, Ruben, thanks for being here. Uh, I'm excited to, to hear some of your glove stories because, you know, you talk about a baseball life. Yours is a baseball life. You're a baseball lifer, right? Yeah, that's great to be with you, Murph, and, and uh, honored to to join your your podcast here. I mean, to, to me, um, you know, you're right. You know, baseball's been my life from uh, from Jump Street. You know, my dad having been involved in it and uh, in in so many different ways, and then me kind of following in his footsteps in some regard. But um, but it's been a fun one, and I've enjoyed every minute of it. Well, and and there's a lots more to still unfold uh, going forward. We know that, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But I guess for you, and this is a question I have not asked anybody else, I don't think on the on the program yet. But I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you to start. What is your first memory of baseball? I mean, because I would imagine it was pretty early in life. Yeah, actually, when I think back, <clears throat> I actually very very faintly remember, and I don't. Um, I must have been an infant. But I faintly remember being in my mom's arms and seeing a lot of red. And so I was very, very young when I was, I was born in 65. My dad was still with the Phillies at the time. Um, I don't have any like real clear ones other than the ones that when I was a little bit older and my dad was playing for the uh, California Angels at the time, you know, my biggest thing, I think I was probably around four or five years old at that time. Uh, the coolest thing about being around baseball was that I got to be at Disneyland all the time because my dad was in <laughs> my dad was right. in Anaheim and we got like free tickets to go to to Disneyland and Knott's Berry Farm and those kind of places. Those um, and so my dad was playing in the summertime. We were living in uh, Orange County in California, and uh, here we are, my brother and I, going to Disneyland every you know every weekend. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, um, yeah. So, this baseball thing's all right. Yeah, yeah. This, I don't mind this baseball stuff. My dad's not around a lot, but right. it's okay. I can still jump on Pirates of Caribbean anytime I want. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, so obviously, you start playing the game at an early age, and, and not just baseball. I know you played soccer as well, and and yeah. uh, you know probably other sports along the way. And uh, but but when when was did baseball? Was it always your first love? Was it always uh, the game that you kind of gravitated back to? It's funny you should say that because really soccer was, I mean, the very first sport that I played um, that was an organized sport in little league, so to speak, was mm -hmm. soccer. I ended up uh, having a real good friend in my grade school from Frankfurt Friends School, a guy named Pat McMenamin. And Pat invited me over for a sleepover one day and he said, hey, man, I got to practice. And I was there. I, there I was and given some pal like the next, you know, that afternoon after I got back to school, uh, came back to school with him and uh, practiced in one of his games. I guess they had a scrimmage and I scored like seven or eight goals. And the, and the <laughs> coach call, coach calls my mom and says, uh, um, Mrs. Amaro, uh, we'd like to have your son on our team. <laughs> I think I he bet. did. I think uh, so that was like my very first memory of like playing sports. And, and I played for Gibbons pal in a number of areas. I started with uh, soccer and then I uh, played a little bit of baseball there, but, um, but then I uh, joined an organization called Crispin gardens, which is in the Northeast Philly. And, uh, and, and really that's when baseball started for me, uh, started off as a peewee. I was mm -hmm. playing a couple of years uh, ahead and I think I was probably nine years old. I was playing in a, in a team that probably was 10, mostly 10 and 11 year olds. And uh, my brother was playing up. He, we also played. And, you know, I was always chasing my brother. My right. brother, David, uh, was always kind of his friends were my friends. I was always kind of trying to be, you know, the big boy because my brother was, you know, he was a little yeah. bit more advanced, two and a half or so years older than me. So I was always kind of chasing him and playing up and, and doing that sort of stuff. But um, 
but yeah, it was soccer first and then baseball. And then I ended up playing basketball and tennis and swimming and a bunch of other stuff. But, um, I don't think it was until really, honestly, it was until I became a bat boy in Philadelphia. My dad was um, involved in the organization as in a lot of different roles, but he was, became a coach. And I started working for Kenny Bush in the clubhouse and, uh, and then became a bat boy and went age 15, 16, 17 years old. And that's when baseball became my, my real love. Okay. Uh, but obviously you were an accomplished player at that point, you know, at, at the high school level and, and that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And I started, you know, I played high school ball and soccer and uh, actually probably a better soccer player than I was a, a high, a high school baseball player. But um, I think just being around the clubhouse and being around, you know, you know, the Mike Schmitz and the Larry Boas and uh, Manny trios and, Bob Boone's. I mean, you can go on and on and on those great late seventies, early eighties teams. Um, and then, you know, getting to meet guys like Gary Matthews and Steve Carlton and just being around them almost all the time. I mean, I thought to myself, man, not only is this game like, like fun, but you know, you can make some money doing this too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, that's a pretty nice car. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, and then, uh, and, you know, I got to, then, then I saw, you know, a bunch of stuff about Pete Rose and got to meet him. And, you know, my dad was you know now in the part of the part of the coaching staff. And yeah. it became one of those things that, uh, you know, that the, the fantasy started to become something that I wanted to make a reality and, uh, and ended up going and playing off, you know, playing baseball at Stanford and, and et cetera, et cetera. But, um, but th it was really the impetus behind me, like wanting to play baseball was just being around and being in the clubhouse with all those guys for so many years. I, I've heard that from so many different folks that, uh, you know, have a connection to baseball before they have their connection to baseball, similar to your story. And, um, you know, just the idea, I, you know, talking to Mr. Giles uh, a couple of weeks back and, and how he grew up in, in a clubhouse, yeah. uh, you know, just that, that idea that, uh, wow, you know, I can be around this game and I can make this my, my livelihood. I can make it my life. Um, you know, it, it clicks early. I think for, for folks that uh, like yourself, who, who obviously were accomplished in the game, but also saw that it, th this is a great way to, to make a living. This is a great way to spend your time. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're, you're right about that. But I think you also develop like a connection with the game in a totally different way than, than maybe others would because um, you, you really, it becomes more of a lifestyle. It becomes a love. You know, you have a, I mean, I, I truly love the game of baseball because I grew up around it. I've seen so many good things, so many like not so good things. I've, I've had an opportunity to just be around some phenomenal baseball people and some not so phenomenal right. baseball people and, and, and just to understand and to be able to be around it and to, just to make it um, for me, it, it wasn't, it wasn't really a job. Um, it became like a lifestyle and a career is really, really different in that regard for me. And, and, uh, and I, it started, you know, started as a kid and really started as a kid and watching my dad, you know, do his thing and, 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 uh, spend time, you know, it, it's funny because you think about it, uh, all the time that my dad spent away from the house and he must've really, really loved the game of baseball to to have spent so much time away from home i knew he loved his family but it was also something that you know this guy you know he must really have something truly invested in this to spend so much time doing it that mm -hmm. he must really love this thing because otherwise yeah. people just wouldn't if you if, if people in baseball got paid by the hour they'd be bazillionaires <laughs> that's the uh, truth and, and 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 so and and you learn that along the way um if you really want to be good at it i mean it's all about you know spending time and making the effort and it's uh anybody who spends that much time doing this uh they must really love it you know that's a it's a really interesting perspective to have uh about your father um you know i think that uh maybe I'll, i don't what, do you re, do you remember when that kind of clicked with you it, was it in your teenage years that, that you said you you made that connection between how much he must really love it to sacrifice the other stuff 
be there for that? Yeah, you know, I had a conversation with my mom, my grandma, who was uh, my my mother's mother, um, and my obviously my maternal mom, my grandmother. She, you know, she said, you know, are you going to get into baseball too? I think I was like fourteen or fifteen years old. I said, well, I don't know, I don't know if I'm going to be. Said, well, if you do, you're going to have to be committed because it's going to take a lot of time away from your home. It's going to be tough yeah. for your family life and stuff like that. And and I think that it's when it started to dawn on me, oh my god. You know, my dad must really, really love this because yeah. I know he loves us. I know he loves my mom, but, you know, he's got to spend a lot of time away from us. And uh, and so this must this there must be some difficulty in this. And uh, surely, you know, listen, I miss my dad a lot. He was sure. away, you know, he was away probably half the month when he was doing the Caribbean stuff. He was actually one of the very first um I guess, Latin American coordinators uh, for the Phillies ever. And so uh, he started to develop where he signed, you know, the guys uh, that were, that ended up being pretty famous, Juan Samuel and Julio Franco and George Bell and guys like that. My dad brought into the organization, um, which I'm really proud of, uh, but I mean, it took a lot of work to do that, man. It's hours and hours and hours in other countries trying to formulate you know, relationships, trying to sign guys, trying to develop, you know, relationships with scouts and such and such. Um, it's, you, you, you know, you have to be committed to doing it. And uh, that certainly was something I learned fairly early. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? You learn also learn that work ethic and commitment, which later in life is going to benefit you and would benefit right. anybody uh, when you sit there. And I, I, I don't want to get too far away from this before I ask you this. So another thing that kind of shapes all of us is is where we grow up and you grew up here in philadelphia yeah. like me you know outside of philadelphia me you you in philly and and just how important do you think that has been because you are philadelphia you know that that's your that's your genesis that's where you come from um and i think that's an important part of what makes us who we are yeah so my dad took root uh, with, with my mom, Judy, uh, in Philadelphia when, after he was traded um, from St. Louis to Philadelphia. My dad met my mom here. He uh, made his roots here, and we ended up uh, living in Northeast Philadelphia yeah. in the Ronners section, and that's where I grew up. Um, and uh, so I was Philly born and bred. Didn't know anything else. Really, I mean, obviously got opportunities to travel and do a lot of other things over the course of my lifetime, but this was home and always was. And even was when I went to college, even was when I ended up playing at the, uh, with the California Angels myself. Anytime, I, it's always home base for me. I always came back here and I've never really left here. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny, I, I meet people in the streets. Uh, so it's great to have you back. I said, I've never left. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've never gone anywhere. I mean, I've gone to other organizations with the Boston and, you know, New York and such, but, but this has always been my home. I made my home here, got married here, had my kids here, the whole nine yards. So, um, uh, the fact that, um, that I get to do what I do now, as far as being on the air and broadcast radio and stuff like that, uh, is really kind of full circle for me. I always, I never want to leave. Uh, I didn't ever want to get fired as a GM, obviously, <laughs> no. but, but uh, things, but things happen. And, you know, but you know, that, the, the, the fact that, uh, Philadelphia, I was Philadelphia born and bred and that my dad worked for the organization for shoot 40 years or whatever, you know, that, that never, I've never thought of myself other than a Philly. Um, even though I was getting paychecks from other places, yeah. <laughs> which is important. Um, you know, this has always been home. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I get it. Obviously, I get that. Uh, I feel very similar in, in, in a similar situation, albeit uh, a different career path. All right, so uh, high school, William Penn, uh, 83 to 87, and then, uh, or, or, no, I'm sorry, 83, 87 college, right, at Stanford? Yeah, uh, you at graduated Stanford, in 87 yeah. from Stanford. Uh, part of a national championship team there, uh, which maybe I think maybe a lot of people don't know. I mean, obviously, the Stanford uh, University, amazing school, great athletics as well um really probably the best of both worlds uh but you guys were a pretty darn good team win it all in 87 yeah i mean that for my my decision came directly from a guy named joe parat the reason that i went to stanford um i mean he basically challenged me because i had opportunities to go to uh, schools princeton duke vanderbilt um 
and um, and Stanford was like, uh, you know, another show. Lafayette also, which was an area school. I um, I had opportunities to stay here and play baseball and probably, um, you know, I was I was, I was not a, a super high recruit, but there were some, you know, schools that because of my academics and because of my athleticism and I guess the fact that my, you know, my dad, you know, some of my, some of my genetics, I guess I had an opportunity to, to um, get a couple of scholarship offers, but I didn't think for a minute actually that I was going to, you know, be like a star or be able to play much at Stanford. But when I went out there on my recruiting trip, man, I was like, Oh my God, I yeah. have to go here. I mean, this place <laughs> is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and I was kind of this close to going to Princeton or Vanderbilt. I think Vanderbilt was my second uh, choice, but um you know, when I saw that place, I said, I it almost immediately I stayed there and believe it or not, it was raining of all, of all things. It was raining for most of my recruiting, but then it like, like the day I was leaving from my recruiting trip, um, the sun came out. I was like, oh, you know, Perfect. this yeah. is what you have to, this is what you have to do. <laughs> so I, I signed my letter, letter of intent. I called my mom and said, I'm going to Stanford, mom. And she's like, what? You're going <laughs> to the other end of the world? Uh, she, she was not, I don't think she was prepared for that. Um, but, uh, but it was one of the best, if not the best decisions I've ever made. Tell me a little bit about that, uh, that 87 championship team, because, um, you know, winning a a national championship in college, I mean, obviously winning a world series in baseball, winning in the, uh, you know, a a super bowl, uh, the greatest achievements for sports, but in college that age with, with like-minded guys around you, that had to be a blast as you guys went through the 87 season and end up in the postseason to win it at all. Yeah, pretty spectacular. We had gone, um, you know, the, the tradition at Stanford was that at that point they had built, started to build kind of a franchise type of an, or, uh, a program there where it became pretty, uh, a pretty good one. And they, you know, the, the, they were striving to get to the World Series and win it, had not won it yet. Mark Marquis was the coach. He's a Hall of Fame coach, uh, had, I don't know how many bazillion wins, but um, and we called him nine. That was his number, number nine. So um, when I got recruited there, the expectation was that we were going to find out in, in, in those years that I was going to be there, we were going to get to the World College World Series. That was the goal and to win it. And that's all we thought about. And my first year, my freshman year, got a chance to play quite a bit as a DH, and, which was an amazing opportunity for me. We got to the regionals, got knocked out early. My second year, my sophomore year, we had a phenomenal team. Um, a couple of the major leaguers, or one of the major leaguers, I guess, Jeff Ballard, who was a left-handed pitcher, was our number one starter. Uh, Pete Stanisek was a second baseman, the outfielder for the Baltimore Orioles. There were some other guys who got like to AAA and did okay. Rick Lumblade and some others, uh, some All-Americans. Rick Lumblade actually got drafted by and, and signed by the Phillies. He was a catcher, first baseman. Anyway. Um, we were ranked number one. We had an unbelievable season. I think we lost, we were like 57 and 13, some ridiculous. I mean, we crushed and we had some really, really talented guys. Another guy named Mark Davis, who ended up getting to the major leagues. Um, Mike Davis's brother, an outfielder. Um, but, um, but we, we, we go in ranked number one in the country. And, you know, the top eight teams, you know, they play, you know, round robin or whatever it is. And, you know, you go, if you win games, you stay in the winner's bracket, you lose a game, you go into the loser's bracket. We got knocked out in like two games. I was playing third base my sophomore year and and uh, wasn't a very good third baseman, but I could swing the bat a little bit. But um, they used to take me out for defense because I stunk. But anyway, they um, we got knocked out pretty quickly. And that was kind of a shocker because we went in number one and then we ended up getting knocked out by like the number eight seed i think it was miami we just got beat up and um and it was unfortunate but the goal from that point on was then you know not just to try to make a name for yourself but i mean the next goal was to try to get not just get there but to win it and so in 87 i ended up playing for a team uh that had guys like jack mcdowell is our number one we used to call him blackjack uh, great competitor. We had Ed Sprague, who was a third baseman, who was an outstanding, had an outstanding, yeah. two guys who had made excellent major league careers. Toy Cook, who was in like an all pro uh, D-back, also played center field for us. And he got drafted by the 
by, I think he got drafted by the Minnesota, I want to say he got drafted by the Minnesota Twins at some point. Um, but we had some really good play. I ended up playing left field. I, they moved me to the outfield at that point and was a preseason. I was a preseason All-American. ended up being a, a second-team All-American that year. Had a very good year that year. Um, David Esker was a shortstop who is now the head coach at Stanford. So um, Ron Whitmire played for the A's. And we had a bunch of guys who sure, actually got to the big yeah. leagues. And so we had a, um, a, a pretty darn good pitching staff. And we just gelled, man. It was unbelievable. My senior year, I remember one of the biggest things that I think had happened for us was we gelled so well together. It was kind of like an old school team. I was like a member of a different fraternity. I was a Theta Delta. And then when I became a senior and kind of one of the captains of the team, I decided to move into the baseball uh, frat, which yeah. Was, yeah, yeah, baseball house, which was the Delta <laughs> And, and I, as a, you know, as a boarder, I just decided, you know what, you know what I'm going to do? I think to, to bring it all together and get us all together, let's just hang out and we'll hang out together. We'll have a few adult beverages together. We'll, 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 um, we'll try to bond a little bit. And we just became a family that was amazing. And so the, you know, we brought in the freshman and Paul Terry was like a freshman of the year that year, ended up having an unbelievable, uh, World Series for us, um, was hitting fourth. I mean, we ended up having like a camaraderie that was built that I think it reminds me a little bit of what it was like to be on the 93 team where you just had a bunch of guys who loved to be around each other, didn't all necessarily love each other, but they, you know, they, when they, when we stepped on the field together, it was like magical. You know, we, we, we try to figure out ways to, to beat the other team and being a part of that and ended up, you know, it was a real unlikely, you know, we were going through the loser bracket and, you know, Paul Carey gets a big home run against LSU to win an extra inning game. And it was like, Oh my God, we're destined to win this damn thing. And uh, you know, Jack, Jack McDowell ends up winning, you know, decisive game in, in the world series against uh, OSU. And I think Robin Ventura was the best hitter on the planet. Yep. We ended up, you know, uh, beating their team. And it was just, it was a spectacular moment. And they they kind of followed it up after that. They won it again in 1988. So we won it in 87. I graduated. Jack signed. Um, a bunch of guys left. But but of the core, you know, there's still a young core of that team. They came back and did the same thing the next year and won back-to-back -back World Series, which was amazing. I mean, yeah. They just had the it factor, you know, they just figured out a way to, to win baseball games. I think Ed Sprague was a big part of it. Um, even as a young player, he was just, he was a presence on the team and, and, uh, and it was just cool because we had a lot of guys who, um, who just wanted to win baseball games and you get enough guys wanting to do that. And you definitely had that in, in that 93 team, as I yeah, uh, exactly. referenced yeah. before. You get enough guys to do that on one team and then have enough talent. You obviously have to have the talent sure. to do it. Um, it can be really magical, and it was for us. Yeah, that's, it's an interesting parallel with the 93 team because a lot of the things you're saying are things that that we hear your teammates from 93 saying all the time about, yeah. the, about that particular year and how special it was. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, yeah. Before we leave the, the formative years, 85, uh, you're in Cape Cod playing in the Premier Wooden Bat League, and uh, I've heard great stories out of the Cape Cod League. Um, you know, I, I, I can't get the image of Mickey Morandini as a shirtless house painter out of my head uh, where he would paint the houses during the day and, and play yeah. baseball at night. What, what, a similar experience for you? I mean, it must have been the best time, right? So I was a houseboy one year, and that <laughs> So, so I ended up going, there was a very um, affluent woman who owned this home uh, on the Cape and I, I played for Katuit and uh, that was a blast too. I mean, I ended up playing for, with some unbelievable major league players. Uh, Greg Vaughn was our center fielder. I mean, Brian Hickerson, Chris uh, Carpenter. I mean, we had major leaguers wow. all, I mean, guys who played major league baseball all over the place uh, and guys who got to the triple A and didn't quite get to the big leagues, but um, we had some really, really good, uh, Derek Lilliquist played on our team. So we had a whole slew of guys who were major leaguers. We ended up winning the championship one year, but um, even Ed Sprague played with me one year, but we, um, I was the house boy. So my job 
And every single day was to, they, should, they had a home that was like embedded kind of in the woods and they had a huge deck. And, you know, I grew up in like, you know, kind of middle America. I grew up in a duplex and I had never seen houses this like grand, grandiose, right? So here I am like every single morning, like the first part of my day, I would come in, have to sweep the deck of all the leaves. You know, it was like, a, I don't know how many square feet that I had to do that and then I did some painting and then I did some pruning and I was doing all types of stuff just around the house just to clean up the house and and to, and I got paid you know an hourly wage whatever it was a minimum to to do that um so that was that was an interesting one uh that that was a little tougher than my than my next year's job which was actually because I graduated I got to come back another year so they gave me the cushy job so I got to do the clinic baseball clinics for the okay. kids yeah, it's a and that fun. was a blast. I did that actually with Ed Sprague, and he and I just um, we just did you know for kids anywhere from age. I think the cutoff was like seven or eight years old to like twelve or thirteen, and we got kids in the area, and they came like every morning um, on our on our home games, and we did a clinic, and it was just you know teaching them like the basics of baseball. And that was so cool. I mean, that was really, really, really cool. And the neat thing about doing that was that you could like almost immediately see like which kids were like really athletic, even at a young, young age, sure. just by the way they handled the, their, their glove and how they could catch And One of the toughest things to do, if people don't know this, is that is to actually be able to have the eye-hand coordination to catch a ball, like to, to with, the, with your glove, you know, to be able to use your hand with the, with a dexterity that's different from from other athletes and be able to gauge like when the ball's coming and when to catch it and to have that kind of um, eye-hand coordination. And it was so cool to watch like some of these young kids like get better and better and better. I actually still had relationships with some of the people who um, I had did the clinics with. And that's, that's pretty cool. I mean, yeah. for, for a long, I mean, I've known these people for, you know, 30 some years now, 40 something, something years almost now. And, uh, and to still have those relationships. It was a great experience in the Cape. I'm lucky, luckily for me, I got to do it two years. Yeah. It, yeah. It, you know, listening to the guys talk about the Cape Cod league, it always, it sounds, I mean, we've all seen the movie and, and, and that's all fine and good, yeah. but, uh, yeah. but, uh, but, you know, if you love baseball and and if you aspire to be a professional ball player, going through the Cape Cod League is is a special experience. And uh, but it sounded like a blast too, to be a young person. Uh, you know, and you know, you're almost like a celebrity in town at that point. And uh, yeah, it's it's really cool. And 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 actually, the year that I started was the first year they did wooden bats, so it became okay. a wooden bat league. That was the first time. And um, and I thought that would be a great experience for me. My dad was like all in, like, yeah, yeah. grab a wooden bat, feel, get the feel for it because it's way different. And uh, and and that was a great exposure for me and, and a great learning experience. Yeah. All right. So uh, you get drafted uh, by the California Angels uh, in the 11th round. Uh, yeah. you, you make your way through the minor leagues. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time in the minors, but I went back and was looking at uh, at your numbers in the minor leagues. Man, oh, man. You raked in the minor leagues. I mean, and and yeah. you and you moved through pretty quickly, obviously, yeah. because you were hitting the ball so well. Um, but uh, I mean, you had to feel like, all right, I got this thing locked down, right? Yeah. So I studied hitting a lot. It was like one of these project things for me, and I knew that um, I didn't have like a ton of power. I could run well. Um, yeah. I didn't. I wasn't really super skilled defensively, but I could play a bunch of different positions, and so I figured you know what, if I'm going to get to the major leagues, I better do something extraordinary. And I don't have anything that I can physically do extraordinarily well other than maybe run a little bit. Um, so I better be able to hit. And so I studied hitting a lot and, and did a lot of work with that. And I remember reading, you know, all types of hitting books, like uh, Ted Williams's book and Wade Boggs's book and all different excerpts and people talking about it and it just sucked up a lot of information and worked on some of the things that really helped would help me be as good as I could possibly be. And, uh, and I was a pretty good hitter. I was actually a really good minor league hitter and made myself, um, you know, pretty damn competent with making contact and, and uh, ended up, uh, I think that was the reason. I mean, I was a late round pick. I was like eleventh rounder. I was a tenth pick, I think, that year. Um, but I was eleventh rounder, and it wasn't like they invested a ton of money in me or anything like that. But 
but I knew that I had to make my mark by throwing up numbers and heavy numbers every year. So one, I remember Bill Bavese was the director of the minor leagues before he became the GM. And I remember like one year after having a pretty decent year in, in, in a ball, my first uh, long season, a ball in Palm Springs. I remember saying, Hey, you know what? You walked a lot and you did a lot of this, but you didn't drive the ball enough power, not enough doubles. Not enough. Okay. All right. So I got to get stronger. So I got stronger that off season and I had like the next year, I think I, uh, I had more doubles than anybody in our organization. So I, you know, I try to make myself indispensable <laughs> um, in a way that um, at least they, they would have to like look at me and say, Hey, this, you know, this guy, this guy's not too bad, you know, yeah. and maybe we can move him to the next level, see how he does. And so I was fortunate enough to be able to play in some pretty good offensive leagues in, in the uh, Texas league. I put it, you know, it's, you know, some of those numbers are pretty inflated. And then in the, uh, <laughs> but, but you got to do it too, right? right. It's like saying, oh, you know, I got to do it. We're not playing very good teams. Well, guess what? You got to beat those teams too. Exactly. So, um, so I, I, I did have some success there. And uh, unfortunately, I didn't carry it too far in major leagues, but, <laughs> but it was, um, but it certainly helped get me there and, uh, and get me noticed. And, and uh, I was really lucky, very fortunate. You're do you remember the minor leagues as a, as do you have fond memories of the minor leagues? Cause it's, it's hit or miss with yeah. guys. They either hated it or yeah. they loved it. You, you so did. I had a love hate for it. I mean, okay. so, so, um, and, 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 I, and I'll try to explain it this way. I mean, when you're first playing in the lower minor leagues, you're like really, really happy just to get an opportunity to play professional baseball. You're not getting paid squat. Um, I mean, I made $750 a month and I only played, or $700 a month. My first year, I only played, what, a month and that two months. And then the next year, I got a raise to 750. I was the MVP of the team. I got a raise to 750. I was playing in Palm Springs. Like, how is 750 a month going to make yeah. it to Palm, through Palm Springs? Yeah. So four of us lived together, and I, I played with um, a guy named John Orton, who was a first-rounder, was a catcher um, for the – he got to the big leagues with the Angels, um, who was pretty talented, but it just couldn't hit enough. A guy named Mark Baca is now a scout, I think, with the Washington Nationals with, uh, for, for a long, long time. Um, he got to like double A. Reed Peters is now a, I think it's a head coach at U.S. Air Force Academy now. And myself, the four of us lived together in Palm Springs. We played a lot of hacky sack. We, uh, <laughs> we, we just played baseball. And it, yeah. that was a blast. I got to tell you that that might might have been the greatest summer spring and summer I've ever had was the spring and summer of, of, of Palm Springs in in 1988. And uh, I ended up getting to the double A for a short period of time. Somebody got hurt and I happened to be hot at the time. I got up to the double A for for a minute while they were in the playoff run and then got sent back. But we ended up winning, you know, the first half. I think we played in the playoffs and then we just built like it was fun. We, we, we built a nice camaraderie. Now, as you get closer and you're getting closer, now you start thinking about long term. Like, dude, um, am I going to be a major leaguer? And, and we start thinking, uh, you, you start thinking a little, about, a little bit more individualistically about what you need to do in your career to get there. And uh, and I still have great um, fond memories of playing in Midland, Texas, and AAA. And I still have. Um, in Edmonton, and I still have great friends. Gary DeSarcina is still a close friend. I got the coach with him. Paul Sorrento, who I played with in A-ball, is a close friend. He's now a, a hitting coach with the California Angels. Joe Madden was our uh, field coordinator. So I have a great relationship with Joe. I've known him for many, many, many years. Um, so you, over the years, you get to know people and yeah. still have, you know, still have friendships and bonds. But, um, uh, but but it does become difficult because then you get start to get a little, you get a little edgy because you're putting up numbers and you're doing things. And why am I not getting a call to the major leagues? And how come I'm not? And then you get a call and I, I got to the big leagues and then I didn't, you know, didn't get at a bat. I think I don't even know if I got an official bat. got sent back down. I was like, I hate this game. You know, I can't, you, know <laughs> you get, you go from heaven to hell in about two seconds. Right. And, and then, and then you start then things I think become, a little different as far as your outlook, you know, now you're thinking about long-term career, like, man, I got to figure gotta out make a living. To be a major leaguer. Yeah. I gotta, because I'm not making any money doing this in the minor leagues. And so, 
Um, so then it becomes a little different when you're bouncing back and forth, but you know, you still got to love it. You still got to hang in there and you still got to grind it out unless you happen to be uber talented, like some of these guys are, and they get to the big leagues and they can make it and, and then move on. That doesn't happen all that often, but it, you know, not everybody right. goes in the straight line. Right. Yeah. And, and I think, yeah, I think that's something that folks maybe don't understand that there, there are very few guys that are kind of just like destined for the big leagues. They're going to get there. They know they're going to stay there. They're going to make the big money. And, and, you know, the rest of you guys, it's, it's a, it's work and it's a hard work and there's stress involved and you get there and then it's trying to stay there. And, you know, you got the young kid coming up behind you. It's all of that. Um, yeah, there, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's very few Ken Griffey Jr. So I got a chance yes. to play against him and watched him. And I got, I remember calling my buddy Dave Esker and going, I just saw like a Hall of Famer, dude. This kid's 17 years old and he could do more things than I've ever seen anybody in the world. Right. Um, but, you know, the Mike Trouts and the, and the Ken Griffey Juniors of the world who get to the major leagues and have success, it just doesn't happen all that often. No, it really doesn't. It really doesn't. All right, so you mentioned it. You make your debut on June eighth, nineteen ninety one. I I think if I if I was reading the box score right, you got in in the ninth inning as a defensive replacement. I think because you did not get an official at bat in that game. Right. So I came in as a pinch runner for oh, if I go. remember right. If I remember right, and I think I do, I come in as a pinch. My first appearance is I'm as a pinch runner, and I literally can't feel my feet when I run onto the field. I bet. And I was I was generally a good base runner um, who could steal some bases. And we were down a run. Dave Parker hits a bullet off the right field wall that can only get a single out of it. Here, here I come to go pinch run for Dave Parker. They bunt me over. <clears throat> I slide into second base. I almost slide past the bag. I'm so excited. <laughs> Almost slide off the bag up to grab the bag. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, oh my God, the dirt's different here, man. I usually stop here. The big leagues, the dirt. Yeah. I didn't hit a rock, you know? Yeah, yeah exactly. And uh, and then um, we ended up getting, like, somebody hit a humpback line drive and I couldn't score. So I was first and third. And then somebody hit a double, double play ball. Oh, it was Max Venable hit a bullet for a double play ball to end the game. We ended up losing. And you know, two days later, I get sent out. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and and there you go. And there's that. That's the heartache because right. you don't come back again until September 19th, and you you, you come back up um, as part of I'm I'm guessing as roster ex expanded and that kind of thing. But on yes. September 22nd, then it happens for you, right? Now, what's right. your memory of your first big league hit? Because uh, Roberto Hernandez was on the mound, right? right. Uh, take us through that. Yeah. So I had not. I mean, it had been obviously a long time coming. I think I, my first couple of at bats, I think I walked and I couldn't, you know, I had, didn't have, hadn't registered. And then I got a, made a couple of outs and then I got a start against the white Sox, and I'm playing and Roberto Hernandez is throwing a hundred miles an hour with a lead pipe cutter. I've never seen a cutter before in my life. And he's, uh, I had hit a couple of balls really good early in the game. I was hitting right-handed against a guy named Greg Hibbert, left-hander who kind of soft tosser. And uh, Ozzie Guillen made three unbelievable plays against me. And I'm going, like, three balls that in the minor leagues were base hits. I'm going, oh, my God, I'm going to get my first. Thrown out. Yeah. Thrown out again. And then, I, I, and then in my last at bat, I'm facing Roberto. And Roberto throws me a cutter about 95 miles an hour. And it hits off my hand. And it bloops just <laughs> out of the reach of Ozzie Guillen. And Ozzie picks it up and then tosses it into our dugout. My first hit. How about that? That's yeah, cool. Yeah, that's cool yeah. because again, that's baseball. You hit three on the screws and you're yeah. out, and then you hit the the one off the handle and yeah. find some some real estate. And next thing you know, you you're a big leaguer with a base hit. That's right. Uh, that's right. Yeah, cool, cool moments. Uh, let me. I, I know. I knew we were going to do this because I don't want to keep you too much longer. But I, I want to get to '93 um, quickly, just because we've had so many of the '93 guys come through uh, on the podcast this year. It's always fun to hear the stories. Uh, uh, you know, you're a relatively young guy on that team um, coming in in the middle of the season, but uh, but you're back in Philadelphia. Well, you were in Philly, but you're you're there in Philly. Um, so I imagine there's a comfort level at one hand, but being around those guys, what was it like for you? No, so great. Uh, so so the great story about this is in '92, I was a rookie, and you know Lenny Dykstra gets hurt, and I end up playing a lot, and I really struggle. But they don't really have anybody else to go to for most of the year, and I finally um, got to the point where I just wasn't playing well enough. They send me out. It was almost like a godsend for me. And then I come back at the end of the year. So I didn't. 
make the greatest impression my first month. Well, first week I was like on fire, but then I really struggled through the middle of the season. At the end of the season, when I got called back up, I think it was sometime in August, I think I recalled in 92, we had a terrible team. We didn't play very well. Um, I had a tough time, like, like, I wasn't one of the guys like I had to, you know, I had to bide my time. I was a rookie. And back then, you know, it was, uh, it was Darren Dalton and it was Crucky and there were some veterans there and, you know, you had to, you had to pay your dues and uh, was not one of the boys by any stretch of the imagination and uh, probably used my mouth probably a little bit too much. And they were like, dude, beat it. And, but in 93, um, there was a totally different feeling for me personally, just because um, the team was winning. And when I got an opportunity to get back, I was sent down uh, to the minor leagues at the outset of the season because they had signed so many very good players. They had Eisenreich and uh, Milt Thompson and Pete and Cavillia in the outfield and West Chamberlain and yeah. dude, the dude was, you know, Lenny was, was healthy. So I was odd man out, out. So, um, so I started off the season in the minor leagues and then I asked West Chamberlain got hurt and I finally got recalled and it was a totally different feeling in the clubhouse. It was not only did they, was I respected more? Cause I, I think that I'd gone through the whole clubhouse thing, but I think I matured also a little bit as a player. And I think I was accepted a lot, uh, a lot better. And I became kind of a role player for the team. Um, as you probably remember, there was three platoons we had the platoon and left a platoon and right uh, and then a platoon at second base and when west chamberlain got hurt i started playing uh against the left handers when eisenreich didn't play in right field they had mel thompson and and uh and incavillian left and then they had uh, mariano duncan and and uh, mickey morandini at, at second base and so I got opportunities to play. And when I played, I played well. And, uh, you know, I would get a bunt down. I could you know, I could do some of the little things, pinch run, pinch hit, do diff- like some of the little things to contribute to some of the wins. And I think I gained a lot more credibility with, you know, you know, with, with the guys in yeah, the corner, yeah. you know, yep. with, the, with the big boys in the corner in the locker room. And uh, and I I I. I would be remiss if I didn't say at one point, I remembered uh, of all people, and I didn't know if I liked this guy that much at the at the time, but I remember John Cruck coming up to me and saying, listen, man, at some point you got to stop looking over your shoulder and worrying about and just go play. You just got to go play. And I remember those words because they were very poignant for me. They, I, and I've told John since then, I mean, they, they meant a lot because he knew I was struggling mentally to, to like get over the hump because I, it'd been a long time since I struggled. I was like, Oh my God. And for him to say that. Um, and then when, you know, I started gaining a lot more, uh, credibility with your peers when they ended up making the roster for the playoffs, I was, uh, taken off the roster and they brought Tony Longmire and added him to the roster. It was a young player who was a pretty good left-handed hitter, probably a better left-handed hitter than me, probably more of a home run threat. But I felt that I earned my colors, so to speak, and right. felt like I was like the right guy. And when the players came out publicly and said to me and publicly that um, that I kind of got screwed there, that's when I felt like, oh, my God, I think I've made it as a major leaguer. Because anytime you gain your credibility from your peers, it, it that's, that's way more important than anybody else. Yep. Your family, your friends – your, the fans, when you get gain credibility from your teammates right. and the veteran teammates, that's when you feel like you've, you know, you've accomplished something. You feel a lot more comfortable. And that, that was what was so cool for me at the end of that 93 season. Yeah, and that is cool. And, you know, if there was one thing about that team that they respected was playing the game hard and playing the game right. right. And if you're getting Correct. months down and you're taking extra bases and you're doing those things they those guys as crazy of as a bunch as they were 
in between the lines. That's all that mattered to them. And 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 if you're doing that, if you were part of that. You were you were part of them. That's that makes yeah. a lot of sense that uh, they, yeah, no they recognize that. And you know, we we know John very well, John Crook, and and I mean, you know, I've gotten to know a lot of those guys over the years uh, from that team, um, and they all had that persona uh, inside that clubhouse. I covered that team. I was a freshman reporter coming coming into that clubhouse uh right out of college and uh, uh it was a very difficult room to be a part of but we know them so differently now and it doesn't surprise me to hear right. something like that john yeah. would never have wanted that public at back then yeah but, but yeah. you know but yeah. he knew no, how no, it was for you to hear very very cool moment for me and and i'll never forget it it was important you know and i and, and something that i remembered and and uh uh and it's also something I remember having a conversation with guys like Kevin Stocker and Lieberthal when I was playing in AAA with them during that year. I'm like, hey, guys, listen, you're going to be needed at some point. Just relax and go play the game. It's going to happen for you guys. And sure enough, Kevin Stocker gets called up and he hits like 330. I mean, he was at like 120 in, in AAA and he no. was like distraught. I'm like, dude, they want you for your glove. You need to just catch the baseball. Don't worry about all the BS that's going on because at some point you're going to get a call up and sure enough, he gets called up to the big, same thing with Levy. I mean, I remember having, you know, Levy is worried about his numbers and oh my God, I'm here. I'm like, dude, you'll be in the big leagues. Just relax, play the game. And I just remember having the, you know, having those same sort of conversations with guys just because I knew it had, you know, such a different impact with me. Yeah, it, it it's awesome. All right, but I got one more question before I let you go because I got to touch on uh, your days in the front office. Your playing career ends, and you immediately join the Phillies front office. Ed Wade, uh, who uh, we we is still around today. I just saw him on Sunday. As a matter of fact, yeah. he was at the game. Um, uh, you join uh, the front office, and you know it, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, uh, a young man who's been around the game, uh, Stanford education. You know, a perfect, really perfect fit for you in the Phillies organization. Um, uh, and then, you know, obviously you, we win in 08 with Pat and and then you take over the, the the reins and there's so much more to talk about. But just give me one. Give me one moment uh, when when you're in the room and you're making the decisions. I mean, there's some big trades that happen over the next couple of years. You bring in some some outstanding players into the organization. Um, is there a moment that you think back and you think, wow, you know, you're, you're looking around and, you know, you just hung up with another GM, you know, this is happening and. And you say to yourself, oh, my gosh, just pinch me at this point, right? Yeah, I I, gotta, I have to say it had to be the Cliff Lee trade at the trade deadline because, um, I, I mean, it had such amazing, amazing immediate impact. I mean, if my first trade was one of them. I think I traded Golson for for uh, John Mayberry Jr. There was yeah. two first rounders that really had not worked out very well for either team. Um, Golston for us and John Mayberry Jr. I think for the Texas Rangers. Yeah. And uh, although we may have been traded twice. Anyway, so we flip-flopped. That was like my very first trade. I was nervous. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I mean, what's gonna happen? I think I figured, you know what? Um, and then you know, John Mayberry ended up being, you know, good. had some 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 impact on our club. So it ended, you know, um, he didn't end up being a championship player, but he ended up having some impact on us and, and did contribute to the organization. Um, but the Cliff Lee trade for me was when um, I had been, I had gone through, uh, obviously, as a, an assistant for 10 years under Pat and under um, Ed Wade that, um, you know, you, you, you witness, watch guys work and you see how they you know, they see how they, you know, manipulate and you see how they work things and such. And, uh, and I just try to take as much information from all those guys because they're really good at what they did. Yes. Um, and I was so fortunate to work for both of them um, and just try to be myself. And, and I was lucky to have a really su support of some great people in baseball. I had Dallas Green with me at my one side. I had Pat Gillick was still one of my advisors. I had Guys like Scott Profrock and, you know, Charlie Kerfield and uh, Mike Onda, who was a great help to us, yeah. is now still with the organization as the post-scouting director. Just a lot of good people around. Gordon Lakey, Gordon Lakey who was uh, a longtime scout, professional scout, and, and uh, was, was excellent in what he did. And just to have that experience around me really helped me to make that decision. Ultimately, it falls on me, but... 
but it really is a group effort. It's it's really about um, making decisions as a group. And I always believed in that. And, you know, I was dead set on trying to get Roy Halliday. He was my guy. And uh, and we ended up, you know, checking off and getting making making a deal that was probably more advantageous for us at the time based on who we gave up. Um, by getting Cliff Lee and he just pitched lights out. I mean, he was phenomenal. Um, And so in a lot of ways, you know, you're very, very nervous about making that big, big deal. Um, But uh, having done that and then getting kind of like, I remember walking into either Arizona or San Diego's clubhouse when we made the deal and like had the players like give me a standing O when I walked into the, I mean, dude, that was of all the things that happened in my career, as far as me being like humbled and proud for the players to react like that, I was like, Oh my God, this is, this is really badass. This is cool. Yeah. Now it's quite a moment. That was quite a moment. Oh man. It sounds like it. Um, Okay. I'm, I'm going to be true to my word. I'm going to, I'm going to wrap this up, but uh, just tell everybody out there right now that uh, being a broadcaster is much tougher than being a GM and being a ball player. Just It's the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. I literally, literally (laughs) hours and hours and hours of preparation. I I just Uh, needed everyone. Uh, Anyone could play the game. Come on. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I tell you, I, I have, I've gained a, a great deal of respect for the people that are behind the mic these days because it is not easy. It is a hard job. And the fact that, uh, you know, we have a team of people who are doing that here in Philadelphia that are, as far as people are concerned, yeah. tremendous people, uh, yeah. uh, you, you included, but, um, but it's been a cool family to be a part of, and uh, I'm glad they've kind of taken me in. They, they haven't they haven't shut down and thrown me to the side quite yet as a, well, as a rookie. But hey, you know what? You've uh, you've certainly uh, earned your stripes and uh, have added an awful lot uh, over the last year and a half to the broadcast. And uh, you know, it's just another thing that you add to that that very very impressive resume of yours in this game. We didn't talk about it, like three other things that you've done, but that's okay. Uh, Ruben, I, I really appreciate you stopping by and sharing your stories. They are great stories, and um, you know it's been uh, it's been a lot of fun for you, I'm sure, over the years growing up in the game of baseball. But like I said at the beginning. I, I feel like there's so much more for you in this game. Uh, who knows what, what comes next for you? Uh, we'll but see. I guess that's the fun of it, right? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm listening. I'm, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing now. Uh, if I get to do it for the next, you know, 20 years or 30 years or until I croak, uh, I mean, I'll tell you, I, I've been very fortunate to be able to, to be able to be around you guys and to be able to bring, you know, baseball to Philadelphia still, yeah. you know, yes. still. Still, right back at the beginning. Yeah. All right, Ruben Amaro Jr. joining us today here on Glove Stories with Murph. We'll take a quick timeout and be back with more right after this. Hey, everyone, Murph here, and the Park Sportsbook app is the official sportsbook partner of the real Philly sports fan. Bet on it all baseball, golf, MMA, and more. Live in game play by play betting lets you bet while you watch. No better way to bet right now than the Parks Sportsbook app. The only sportsbook app backed by the number one casino in Pennsylvania and the only one I recommend. No one does live in-game play-by-play betting better. Bet the money line as it changes during the game on the Park Sportsbook app. Plus, bet on individual player performances. In baseball, you can bet on hits, home runs, and pitcher strikeouts every inning. How about golf? You can bet on match winners, bet on leaders after rounds, and more. New customers sign up right now and get your first bet risk-free up to $500. Just download the app or click parkscasino.com forward slash PA and use promo code ACTION. Do it now. Your first bet risk-free up to $500. Just download the app or click parkscasino.com forward slash PA and use that promo code ACTION. The website has all the details. Get game previews, podcasts, and more on Twitter at Parks Sportsbook. You must be 21 and in Pennsylvania. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Glove Stories with Murph is brought to you by Red Robin. Whether you're hungry for a juicy gourmet burger with bottomless steak fries and an ice cold beer or a crispy chicken tender salad and freckled lemonade, whatever you crave, there's something for everyone at Red Robin. So dine in or order curbside to go. Delivery or catering. Order online now at order.redrobinpa.com.
And welcome back to Glove Stories with Murph and the time on the podcast where we revisit one of those uh, championship games from the championship season of 1980. And to help us do that, as always, Larry Boa joins us uh, to talk about this particular game. Now, Larry, when last we spoke, uh, we had uh, the team was flying back from a West Coast trip where they went four and three. On the West Coast Coast trip, they beat the Giants three times. Um, you beat the Dodgers once, but then lost three straight. Came right. back to Philadelphia, half game back be- behind the Montreal Expos. But you were ahead of the Pirates, and that's who was there in Philadelphia waiting for you, a two-game series with the Pirates. What What are your thoughts about uh, you, you guys were coming home from uh, losing three straight? It was a winning road trip, but you had lost three straight. Where was the mindset of the team right then? Well, the first thing, First is we knew we had the big guy going when we got off the plane. Yeah. And anytime Carlton was going to pitch, we knew we had a good chance to win it. But on the other hand, we it didn't matter if we were in last place, first place, third place, playing the Pirates. You didn't have to do anything to get up for them. It was just a natural rivalry. They hated us. We hated them. So and we knew that the fans were going to be rocking the vet because we were in this thing. And, it, you know, all summer. You guys better win this year. You guys better win. We're going to break up the team. And we felt all that pressure all year. We didn't play consistently, but we started to put things together. And it started with this game against the Pirates. And uh, it was another good game that we needed to win. And the big guy came through for us. There's no question about that. He did. He did. In in unconventional Steve Carlton fashion, and we'll talk about that. But 43,333 at the vet for game one of this Pittsburgh Pirates series. Um, if you're lucky enough, if you're listening and lucky enough to remember Veteran Stadium, when you put 40,000 plus in that place, it rocked like no other ballpark, right? It's really loud. It was really loud that whole month of September every time we played a home game. And then eventually into the playoffs. But you know, the other thing, every time we've done one of these and we've played the Pirates, I always look at the bottom where it says hit by pitches. Somebody's always getting hit. <laughs> I, I don't know if they were on purpose, but there's always a hit by pitch by both teams. And again, the two guys got hit uh, in this game. Uh, but it's just a rivalry, Murph, that the fans were up for it. I mean, you got a lot of people from Pittsburgh that came to watch this game. Sure. And when we went to Pittsburgh, we had a lot of Philly people go to those games. So the rivalry was real. It's obviously it's not like that anymore because you only play them once here and once in Pittsburgh, but back then we played each other a lot and it was real. Yeah. Yeah. And they had, and in 79, they were, they took the division from you guys. So uh, there was a little bit of that as well. A little paybacks after you guys had been riding up top. All right. Well, it would be the pirates who would get on the board first in the top of the second bill Robinson would lead off with a single Lee Lacey doubled to left and back-to-back sacrifice flies gave the pirates a two, nothing lead early on Carlton on the mound that's odd for sure um was he the was he one of those superstar pitchers that if you got to him early that's that's about the only way you're going to beat him if you are going to get to him Murph which not too many people did but when you did you had to get him in the first three or four innings he remembering that game he was his command wasn't real good but you know what if you don't get him you know you, you kick him down to one day and he gets back up you might as well forget it because he he fights to the end and I, if I'm not mistaken, he gave us a lot of length that game. Even though he started off, they could throw seven or eight innings. And even though he started off a little slow, he did what he was supposed to do. He kept us right there. And uh, that really helped our, our ball club because we had to go to the bullpen. I think we used two or three relievers. And if I'm not mistaken, Pittsburgh used a bunch of relievers. They, they went through their whole bullpen. I think they used five or six guys out of right. the pen that night. Right. Uh, you're right. All right. What well, you guys did, what you needed to do, you come right back in the bottom of the second, facing John Candelaria. Uh, Luzinski led off with a single, trio grounded out, Maddox doubled to put runners at second and third. Then you hit a sacrifice fly, get the first run in, then Bob Boone doubled, tied the game at two. So bang, you get uh, Carlton the runs right back, and that's what you want to do for your A's, right? Yeah, we, we, you know, once we got back in that game right away, because Candelaria was tough. Yeah, I mean, he, he had that uh, unorthodox, he sort of slung the ball, but he threw very hard, 6'5". They had everybody on that team was like 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, and they threw hard and they were mean, obviously. <laughs> they, they didn't care if they hit anybody. But uh, he, we knew it was going to be a tough game with him on the mound before we even took the field, and it was good to get back in the game right away. Because if you give a guy like Con- Candelaria uh, enough runs early, he's going to put you away. But we, got, we bounced back and got right back in the ball game. Yeah. 
just like that. And uh, that's good baseball. All right. So both pitchers at that point, they settle down and you get to the top of the seventh and then the pirates start chipping away again. Lee Lacey leads off, leads off with a, uh, an inning with a triple. Phil Garner hit a double scoring Lacey. Carlton then got Steve Nicosia and John Candelaria out before Omar Moreno would single. And all of a sudden that two run lead is back. It's four, two pirates. Uh, what I find interesting because in now nowadays, you know, Carlton doesn't make it through that inning. No way he makes no. it through that inning, but, uh, <laughs> but Dallas stayed with him. Yeah. Well, Dallas is going to ride the horse. There's no question. And and that's the one thing that's different in the game played today. And, and back when we played is if your ace was out there and you know, he was battling, you, you you're going to stay with him. Yeah. And even though we had a good bullpen, uh, Dallas green respected what Carlton did. He left him in. It might've been too long. There's no question. But to, to, you know, first of all, if you're going to take him out, you better signal before you go to the mound and ask him, because I've been on that mound where uh, Danny Ozark, you say, you all right. He goes, yeah, what do you think? I'm, I'm good. Leave me alone. Stuff right. like that. So Dallas, he didn't even bother and he left him in. And, you know, at the time it didn't look very good, but we bounced back once again. Yes, you did. The score was uh four, two to the bottom of the eighth working against the pirates bullpen. Now Keith Moreland would come in. He would double Lonnie Smith struck out Pete Rose grounded out and in came your old buddy, Kent to to try and finish things up for the pirates and Schmitty right out of the uh, first battery faces triples the score run. Then Lazinski singles to score Schmidt boom game tied at four you guys you guys had to Colby's number a little bit didn't you we did but the two guys you just mentioned they didn't they might have been successful hitting off him but you know when you talk in the clubhouse they didn't like facing him you know the submariner yeah slinging the ball right-handed on right-handed and to see them come up with two big hits against to at that time was huge because usually when to comes in there's ground balls and, and he gets the job done. But those two big guys came up big for us. And that, that was huge. And the crowd was going crazy. I, I remember bet. that. Yep. And, uh, you know, it, obviously the game went into extra innings then. Yeah. Now, and deep into extra innings as well. No ghost runner on second base uh, in the 10th <laughs> no. inning in this one. Uh, and both bullpens would pitch well. Dickie Knowles, two scoreless innings. Then Ron Reed with two scoreless innings as well. And in the 14th inning, Phil's offense facing Mark Lee. Gary Maddox would double the lead off the inning. Always a good sign. There, here's your ghost runner on second. That's how right. you started off with a runner on second. Right. You double, and then you hit a ground ball to the right side, doing the right thing. You move right. Maddox over to third. Bob Boone sacrifice bunt. He lays down a bunt to score the winning run. Is that how that ended? Yeah, it, 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 it it put down sacrifice bunt, but it was a squeeze play. It was okay. almost like yeah. And Dallas wasn't afraid to do that. You know, the bottom of our order with with, with Booney and myself. We always had a lot of situation hitting, and if it meant getting the ball to the right side, that's how we played the game because yeah. we knew the guys in the middle and at the top were going to do their job. And, you, you know, when you hit down the bottom in a good lineup, you better do your job. And, you know, I hit a lot of ground balls after guys doubled the ground ball to second base or first base, and then Booney would do the, the rest. And, and he was very productive down there, but that was a squeeze. I don't remember if it was a suicide or a safety squeeze because Maddox – could really, really run. Yes. And I think it was such a bad bunt. I think it was a suicide squeeze. That's why I think they gave him a sacrifice because it wasn't, I don't think they gave him a base hit on it, but no, Maddox, it everything was perfect. And and that's how we end up winning the ball game. I love it. What a great way to win. Now I can imagine what that crowd must've been like, because I bet you the 44 plus were still hanging around in the 14th inning. You know, Murph, I was going to say something about that. When we had extra inning games, you know, I, I go to a lot of games now at Citizens Bank, and usually in the last, uh, if it goes into extra inning, people will stay to watch Harper hit, and then everybody leaves. They don't want yeah. to have the traffic. But in our games, when we had extra inning games, nobody left. And I guess, obviously, it was we were, we were fighting for Bennett, right. and hopefully that will happen this year with our, with our ball club uh, going down the stretch here. But this was the start of something big. We were running out of games, and we knew it. And yeah. we had to start playing real good baseball going down the stretch because those other two teams, you're talking about Pittsburgh and Montreal, had good baseball teams. They really did. Uh, but this might have been the one of the final nails in the coffin for the Pirates. You guys move a half game out of first place behind Montreal and now three and a half games ahead of the Pirates who were starting to fade at that point. Then you certainly helped them along by winning this game. You would sweep the Pirates and the Mets and you would win four straight still a half game behind Montreal because they kept on winning as well. 
but you would then drop a double header the next day to St. Louis. And all of a sudden two games back with 21 games to play. That's where you sat. It's, it's hard to believe. It, like it, That didn't look good, Murph. No. <laughs> I mean, we knew it too. When we lost the double header, you know, I mean, we, you, you sit around the clubhouse, you go, man, that, that was tough, yeah. but you know, it turned out good as we all know, but to lose two games then was very crucial part of the season. And we knew that our backs were against the wall. There's no question about that. Yeah, exactly. Three weeks of baseball left and you needed to get, catch those Montreal Expos down too. Uh, so that's what we've got. We've got a couple more games to revisit before we get to the postseason, And we'll do that uh, coming up later on a glove stories with Murph a little bit down the road, but right now, Larry Boa joining us uh, as always. Thanks so much. Good to talk to you. All right, Murph, this is getting exciting. I can hardly wait for the next ones. Okay. (laughs) Glove Stories with Murph is brought to you by Red Robin. Whether you're hungry for a juicy gourmet burger with bottomless steak fries and an ice cold beer or a crispy chicken tender salad and freckled lemonade, whatever you crave, there's something for everyone at Red Robin. So dine in or order curbside to go, delivery or catering. Order online now at order.redrobinpa.com. Glove Stories with Murph is presented by Parks Casino Sportsbook app. New users download an app store or click parkscasino.com slash PA and use the promo code MONEY for first bet risk-free up to $500. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Glove Stories with Murph is presented by Parks Casino Sportsbook app and Red Robin and is a production of SBC Media Partners. The engineer for Glove Stories is Chad Evans. Cindy Webster is our marketing and guest relations director, and our executive producer is Roger Haddon. Whether you are watching us on YouTube or downloading the podcast from one of our major podcast providers like Apple, Google, or Spotify, make sure to hit like and subscribe so that we can let you know when a new episode of Glove Stories is available. We'll release new episodes weekly throughout the 2021 Major League Baseball season.